0: Uh, next up is Dr. Timothy Nadru. Dr. Nadru is a research professor and managing editor of the Washington Agribusiness Status and Outlook Report. He is a deacon at Valley Covenant Church in Lewiston and a private economic consultant specializing in energy and regional policy assessment. Tonight, he's giving a talk titled "Ag Subsidies: The World's Other Oldest Profession." Tim. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, George. Thank you, Jonathan. I was supposed to give this lecture at the last George Buchanan Forum and uh, wasn't able to attend, canceled at the last minute, and they graciously gave me the opportunity to come back and and try again. I appreciate the the second chance. So my title, Ag Subsidies, the world's other oldest profession, I'll be honest. As I was preparing this, I started to think I didn't need the word other in that title, but I left it in there. (laughs) So why discuss agricultural policy at a conference that is primarily concerned with libertarian principles? Well, most libertarian principles fly in the face of the left wing's top-down worldview. The right wing has its protected classes as well. So to make sure we are applying our principles with an even hand, I wanted to make sure we were frustrating the right wing's top-down approach as well. If you are bristling at the title of my talk or my implication that farmers represent the right wing version of a protected class, all the gender bending that gets money now, I would suggest that you have not been looking at the data. Farmers for a long time have been getting government protection a lot longer than the new things that are getting protection now. Farmers may be voting in large numbers with and holding to libertarian ideals in their private conversations, but the way that farmers act and the way that they speak are very different. I have yet to talk with a commodity group that isn't actively working to get their hands deeper into the government's pockets. Agriculture is the only industry that has its own government-backed financing system, known as the Farm Credit Services of America. Here in the Pacific Northwest, it's Northwest Farm Credit. It is the only private industry that has direct non-competitive access to federal dollars. And other than public education, it is one of the only industries that receives bipartisan support every time its centerpiece legislation comes to the floor. And it's been that way since 1933. In 2020, net farm income, think ag profits, were $121 billion. Net government payments to farmers that year were $35.5 billion. $121 billion in profits, $53.5 billion in government funds. That means just over 44% of farm profits came from other taxpayers, other citizens. What percentage does that need to be before farmers are considered government employees? In all fairness, the right wing did try to remove the federal farm protections during Reagan's first term. David Stockman, hero of mine, was the OMB director uh, and Reagan's hatchet man. This is what he told to the Senate Budget Committee. Quote, for the life of me, I cannot figure out why the taxpayers of this country have the responsibility to go in and refinance bad debt that was willingly incurred by consenting adults. When the Democrats realized that flyover country was about to flip, they were ready to step in and grab the middle. Reagan backed down. He bought back $4 billion in bad farm debt and solidified his base. So here's what cracks me up, though. The hypocrisy uh, is is best exemplified if you read the Farm Bureau's 2008 national policy position. It's their lobbying book. You, Mr. Congressman, you, Mr. Senator, you want our sweet PAC money? These are the things that you're going to defend. You read that booklet, and here's what it says. They're adamantly opposed to the auto bailout in 2008. Adamantly opposed to it. And almost the entire rest of the booklet is advocating for more farm loan forgiveness programs including school loan forgiveness programs for kids from ag families i was at a conference the uh northwest agribusiness executive seminar it's held down in skamania and it's like forty thousand dollars to attend the conference okay so you get all the rich farmers showing up you know the matheson brothers from Stemelt, all the tree fruit farmers they all show up down there and this this item came up on the agenda and I was kind of shaking my head in this breakout session. The gentleman that was running the breakout session said, Dr. Nadro, what are you thinking? And I said, well, the farming community that I grew up in said you pay your own way and you stand on your own feet. You don't look for someone else to pay. Uh, And a few people smiled and nodded. Uh, Other people were angry. And afterwards the gentleman that was running that that breakout session came up to me and he said that's not how agriculture works anymore (laughs) even the farmers that want to avoid the government programs can't because enrolling in subsidized crop insurance programs and direct payment programs is usually a prerequisite to qualifying for capital or operating loans and that makes sense right if you're if you're a bank Somebody comes to you and wants a loan, and you say, well, if I can push that risk off onto a federal government program, I don't have to take on that risk. I'm going to require that you do that first. In 1982, roughly 30% is still in Reagan's term. 1982, roughly 30% of corn in the U.S. was protected by federal price supports. 30% of corn in 82. By 1987, 90% of corn was enrolled in that system. In five years, we went from 30% to 90%. <clears throat> I should point out that not all commodities are protected by direct payments. Potatoes, tree fruit, for example, are largely unsubsidized. But wheat, corn, rice, cotton, soybeans, they're all subsidized. In fact, cotton, is. there's a great story about cotton. Um, we over our cotton farmers according to the trade agreements that we had with Brazil, so they sued us in the World Trade Organization courts. We appealed, we lost again, they appealed again, we lost a third time. And finally, the WTO said, we're not an enforcement agency. Brazil, contract is breached, you're allowed to retaliate against the US. Um, This was in Obama's term, and uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton sent a coalition down to Brazil and agreed to pay $150 million to the cotton farmers in Brazil, too. So we didn't just subsidize our farmers, we subsidized our competition as well. For those interested, Bruce Gardner has a compelling historical data analysis published in 1996 on federal government programs in agriculture. In case you thought that this was just in the U.S., virtually every developed and developing nation, possibly with the exception of New Zealand, has national farm policy. One of my best friends actually worked with Hosni Mubarak and the Egyptian government back in the 70s to develop their farm policies, though that was largely to try and let private interests into Egypt. My friends in Pakistan talk about their farm policies every day and do most of their economic research on those policies. The developing nations, much like the US farmers, have to have farm policies in place in order to be eligible for IMF and World Bank aid. Not that they should be getting that either. Okay, so the hypocrisy on the right should be clear in this realm. Keep your government hands off of our farm supports. And this is where I want to tell my first story. In 2007, I was starting my master's degree in agricultural economics, and we had a forum on the upcoming 2008 Farm Bill. We had the then president of the Pea and Lentil Commission on the panel. I was taking careful note of his reasoning throughout the evening. He talked about the hard work the commission had done to get dried peas and lentils included in the farm bill. They were so excited that they had finally succeeded. This was going to be the year of the Palouse. Later on, he talked about how ag and food prices were so detrimental to inner-city blacks, particularly black single mothers. According to him, farm subsidies helped keep those prices low. Moreover, the Farm Bill had the SNAP provisions to protect those poor inner-city black mothers from volatile prices. Another student asked why food stamps were part of the Farm Bill rather than administered by Health and Human Services. His answer, quote, quite simply without food stamps, the Farm Bill wouldn't pass the House, let alone the Senate. So just put all of that together in a syllogism. We wanna be paid by the government for growing peas and lentils. In order to get those sweet government dollars, we need the farm bill to pass. These days, in order to get the farm bill passed, we need food stamps. Conclusion, we need to have some inner city poverty. Farmers are incentivized to protect poverty, not to eradicate it. Otherwise, farm profits could fall by 44%. Lest someone in the audience thinks that I'm opposed to profits, I'll just say I am, but only when those profits come directly out of the public coffers. I'm actually a big fan of profits. This leads to my second story. I recently read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, and in there he has an obscure reference to the, the kulaks. And it jumped out at me because the kulaks were a farming society in Soviet Russia. In 1921, Lenin's new economic plan allowed for some privatization of the farming industry. These private farmers were known as the Kulaks and they were a type of wealthy peasant. They represented about 15% of the nation's farmers. The other 85% farmed on the Central Committee's collective farms. You need to understand that you weren't paid on the collective farms. What happened was you would work They wouldn't pay you, you met your quotas. After your quotas, the farm managers would take their cut, and whatever was left, that residual was allocated among the different families. Many collective farmers would go to work for the Kulaks after they were done with their own work, or they would have their children go there to work for them in order to keep their families alive. What Stalin did next was political genius. He had to find a way to get this impending famine off of his shoulders in the Soviet plan. Uh, And so he gave a speech in December of 1929 to an agricultural university in Moscow. And I want to read some of the excerpts of that. Quote, Indeed, in 1927, the Kulaks produced over 600 million pounds of grain, about 130 million pounds of which they marketed outside the rural districts. That was a rather serious power, which had to be reckoned with. How much did our collective farms and state farms produce at that time? About 80 million pounds, of which about 35 million pounds were sent to the market. Judge for yourselves. Could we at that time have replaced the Kulak output and Kulak marketable grain by the output and marketable grain of our collective farms and state farms? Obviously, we could not. So let me stop for a minute. If we take Stalin's numbers at face value, you've got 15% of the Kulak farms producing 90% of the nation's grain. You've got 85% the collective farms producing only 10% of the nation's grain. And this is how Stalin ends the speech. Quote, Now, as you see, we have the material base which enables us to replace the Kulak output by the output of the collective farms and state farms. It is for this very reason that our determined offensive against the Kulaks is now meeting with undeniable success. That is how an offensive against the Kulaks must be carried on, if we mean a genuine and determined offensive and not new futile declamations against the Kulaks. That is why we have recently passed from the policy of restricting the exploiting tendencies of the Kulaks to the policy of liquidating the Kulaks as a class. I want to come back to that quote in a minute. So you see Stalin's argument was that private farming axiomatically could not be that much more efficient than collective farming. So the only way the Kulaks could be generating those numbers was through fraud or exploitation of the, coo- of the collective farmers that worked for them. But fraud or exploitation, they had to be liquidated. They were either shot, exiled to Sir- Siberian work camps, or some of the mothers and children were moved onto the collective farms where they were brutally mistreated. The few that we know escaped fled to China, where 30 years later the same worldview caused another national famine, and Mao's great leap forward killing 15 plus million people. Uh, I want to jump back for a minute to that quote. You need to remember that Stalin and Lenin were opposed to capitalism, right? But listen listen to what he says in his speech. Now, as you see, we have the material base, the capital, which enables us to replace the Kulak output. So he's going to take this capital base that he now has to liquidate labor. It seems like that would have been the death knell of Marxists and Stalin and Lenin altogether. But no one said anything. Robert Conquest is probably a more rigorous historian on the Soviet famine than even Solzhenitsyn. And I think it was Conquest that estimated 9 million Ukrainians, Russians, and Kazakhs died as a result of the famine. Okay, I want to end on an upbeat note with the remaining time that I have. I want to tell a story about the US Supreme Court rolling back a heavy-handed anti-market policy. This story gives me hope, but only just a glimmer of it. Raisin growers that had been supplying World War II troops panicked because they were concerned that raisin prices were going to crash when the troops came home and the DOD canceled all of their contracts. The Raisin Growers got together and had the Secretary of Agriculture sign Marketing Order 989. I'm just going to read you some excerpts from the Supreme Court case, and then I'll explain what a marketing order is. The Agricultural Marketing Agreement Act of 1937 authorizes the Secretary of Agriculture to promulgate marketing orders to help maintain stable markets. For particular agricultural products the marketing order for raisins established a raisin administrative committee that imposes a reserve requirement sounds an awful lot like a quota a reserve requirement that growers set aside a certain percentage of their crop for the account of the government free of charge the government makes use of those raisins by selling them in non-competitive markets donating them or disposing of them by any means consistent with the purpose of the program. If any profits are left over after subtracting the government's expenses from administering the program, the net proceeds are distributed back to the raisin growers. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) Why do this? They curtail supply in order to drive the price of raisins up because the farmers are overproducing what the market wants. It was profitable to have extra land in raisins during World War II, and growers wanted to pretend like demand was still high. So they made the government have a raisin reserve. They effectively had a government-backed raisin cartel. That's what marketing orders are. And you're not allowed to escape. If you go grow raisins, you are in the cartel, and you'll understand why here as I keep reading. This started in 1937. Farmers just went along with this nonsense until 2004. The courts have finally settled this issue in 2014. In 2002, this is is the Supreme Court brief again, quote, in 2002 and 2003, raisin growers were required to set aside 47% of their raisin crop under the reserve requirement. In 2003, 2004, 30%. Marvin Horn, Laura Horn, and their family are raisin growers who refused to set aside any raisins for the government on the grounds that the reserve requirement was an unconstitutional taking of their property for public use without just compensation. The government fined the horns, the government fined the horns for not obeying the cartel, the fair market value of their raisins, as well as additional civil penalties for their failure to obey the raisin marketing order. So the entire story is hilarious. The Raisin Administrative Council hires private investigators to come videotape (laughs) the horns, picking (coughs) raisins, boxing raisins, and shipping raisins without their permission, okay? I'm sure the stress was overwhelming for the Horns, but they stuck with it. The Supreme Court eventually ruled with the Horns, with the sole dissenting opinion coming from Justice Sotomayor. Elena Kagan said, quote, this just might be the most outdated law in the books. But I want to read something from Chief Justice Roberts, uh, and I want to read something from Clarence Thomas as well. Roberts was commenting on the U.S. government's argument that the Horns were, quote, free to plant other crops, including wine or table grapes, unquote. His response was, let them sell wine is probably not much more comforting to the raisin growers than similar retorts have been to others throughout history. In any event, the government was wrong as a matter of law. And he goes on to discuss the solidity of property rights and the legal concept of a taking. Okay, I'm going to read... Clarence Thomas's uh, opinion here in a minute, but you need to understand that um, Justice Breyers um, wanted to remand this case down to a lower court so that the lower court could figure out what the fair market value of the raisins was, and then they they could distribute those funds back to the raisin growers, because he thought that this was wrong as well. But this is what Clarence Thomas says. I joined the court's opinion in full. I write separately to offer an additional observation concerning Justice Breyer's argument that we should remand the case. The takings clause prohibits the government from taking private property except for public use, even when it offers just compensation. That requirement, as originally understood, imposes a meaningful constraint on the power of the state. The government may not take property, the government may take property only if it actually uses or gives the public a legal right to that property. It is far from clear that the Raisin Administrative Committee's conduct meets that standard. It takes the raisins of citizens and, among other things, gives them away, sells them to exporters, foreign importers, and foreign governments. To the extent that the committee is not taking the raisins for public use, Having the Court of Appeals calculate just compensation in this case would be a fruitless exercise. At the end of the day, an 8 1 vote in favor of the horns means not only that anyone who wants to grow raisins may, but that marketing orders cannot, all marketing orders, cannot curtail supply through reserves anymore. One economic truth ties these stories together. Political incentives produce perverse incentives. When politics rather than markets govern economies, the result is government mandated cartels, government induced poverty, and ultimately the usurpation of liberty, property, and life itself. Let me end with this. So Gad came to David and asked him, will you choose three years of famine throughout your land? Three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of severe plague throughout your land. We all know this story, 2 Samuel 24 13. David chose wisely, David chose a plague. I would take 100 COVID 19 trials before considering a Marxian famine. Thank you.